entering the Freedom Hut. A sham going on today on Capitol Hill. You got a few left wing professors who are saying the president should be impeached. We'll get into that. Plus, Adam Schiff got phone records that include some contact with Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. And yes, that's right, John Solomon, a journalist. Talk about that, plus how Iran is in the midst of tumult. What does that tell us about Trump versus Obama on foreign policy? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. An honor and a privilege to have you here with me today. And... Yes, in fact, Bon Jovi is down the hall. So Brandon and I right now are living on a prayer. That's, I will say, Bon Jovi, he still looks good, but I think he's like 105 years old now. Full head of hair. Full head of hair. I respect the, the hair game on Mr. Jovi. He looks like maybe you in, in 30 years. Well, indeed, sir. Well played. <laughs> Give this man a raise. All right, let's get right into it today, folks. You have... Uh... <laughs> the most it's it's different uh, emotions that keep coming up for me with this nonsense going on in Capitol Hill so let's just do a quick review of where we are remember you have the fate of the leader of the free world at stake here and this whole thing is a clown show i mean this is absurd it's ridiculous that's one set of emotions and then on the other side i have My God, the Democrats have completely lost their minds. The media is dishonest, is to be distrusted. And wow, what we are seeing today certainly goes right to the heart of of all of that. It is stunning. It is astonishing. Um, Here's what's going on. The... By way of quick review, the Democrats launched their series of uh, impeachment hearings uh, last... What was it? Last month... And we've been forced to sit through all of this, the series of State Department bureaucrats who have come forward. I mean, because if, if there's one thing that's finally going to convince Rust Belt voters and independents in purple states to turn against Trump, it's having some pompous tenured professor from Harvard Law School give America a boring lecture on the constitutional origins of orange man bad. That's what Democrats have switched to now. We went from State Department bureaucrats to law professors. There were four. I watched the testimony this morning. I do this so you don't have to. Don't worry. It's one of my jobs here. Uh, Three of the four are rabid Democrat partisans. I mean, just could not be any more frothy-mouthed libs, so to speak. I mean, they are just, they hate Trump. Oh, they hate Trump. This is completely unsurprising. It shouldn't be a surprise to anybody watching this. And I think today is also a good reminder, as we have these law professors on Capitol Hill telling us why the president of the United States should be impeached and removed from office. Let's make sure we're clear on that. This is not just a question of whether there should be an impeachment vote to show that Trump has erred. Those who are advocating for impeachment do so with the the clear understanding that the next step is supposed to be removal from office by the Senate. They want to undo the results of the 2016 election. 
So as we have these law professors up there on Capitol Hill, today is a good reminder for all Americans that law schools now overwhelmingly reflect the absurd left-wing dominance that you see in undergraduate institutions, colleges and universities across the country. And in fact, professors at Harvard Law School usually have the same politics as gender studies and diversity assistant teaching professors at woke U, the University University of of, uh, Wokeness or Wokistan or whatever. (sighs) Oh, my. That's what you're seeing today. These professors, with the exception of Professor Turley, who the Democrats don't want to talk to at all. And I'll get into Turley's argument here. And I also want to tell you something because I'm receiving a lot of feedback from you. I am sensitive to the fact that there's more going on in the world. There's more for us to talk about than just impeachment. So every day I'm going to make a real effort, including doing deep dives in subject matter that I think is important, that goes to not just the 2020 election and the political conversation in this country, but that is just of of interest of is worthwhile for us to dive into apart from this just this impeachment cycle impeachment every day i mean i we have to do some of that because we have to also not just understand what's going on because this is the primary political story in this country we also have to push back against the other side we can't leave the propaganda entirely unanswered there will be people out there who especially if we just tire of the defense of reason, sanity, rule of law, constitutionality, rationality, decency, godliness, all of these things. If we abandon the front lines of that, then people will be, some poor souls will be dragged over to the side of the left and believe all of this nonsense, believe all of this absurdity. Which reminds me, my favorite part of the Democrats' impeachment theater is when these petty demagogues pretend they really don't want this. It just pains them to impeach Trump. It makes them so sorrowful and prayerful, in fact, for the nation. Only a moron believes this, my friends, and only a fraud would say it. But here we are. Pelosi, Schiff, they all, Nadler, they all go through the motions. Oh, it's a solemn day for the country. We really don't want to have to impeach this man. Uh, These people are flatly clearly, blatantly absurd and dishonest in all of this. They are power hungry and power mad. And remember, they feel affronted by the president of the United States. Personally, they do take this quite personally. Um, They think that this president is an insult to their very existence. And so it's more even than just making sure that they regain power. There's also the repudiation of everything that is Trump. They, they insist on that. They need that. They don't just want victory. They want victory and then they want to uh, salt the earth afterwise and tear down every structure and make sure that there's nothing left of, of Trumpism. But here is the big problem that they face for those of us who are trying to be honest and serious about this. Um, they keep changing what it is they're telling us is so terrible that has occurred. And that's because it's not working. They change tactics and strategy every day because trying to convince the American people that the president did something terrible isn't working. There are about 40 percent or 45 percent of Americans 
who will believe anything about this president because all they care about is how much they have been trained like a bunch of seals to hate this president. You know, everybody has to hate this president. Everybody has to sort of clap together, you know, pass the beach ball on the nose from one to another like the seals. They, they have to those kinds of seals, not the elite commandos. I mean, I think that was clear, but just just to be. So there's no just so media matters can't pull that out. Oh, is he mocking our warriors? No, I meant the the uh, aquamarine mammals with uh, shiny coats of fur and, and and blubber, which I can tell you is probably very handy in this time of year for any for any mammal. All right, back to why their story. <laughs> sorry, is a buck diversion. Back to why their story doesn't hold up here. Why the Democrats are in trouble, Professor Jonathan Turley, whom I've I've interviewed many times. I will say a very, uh, very gentlemanly fellow and, and, a, and a scholar. I mean, and by the way, a Democrat. He is a Democrat. He did not vote for Trump, but he's not an absurd leftist. I, I, I do believe we have to remember that that exists. Not all Democrats are lunatics. Lunatics run the Democratic Party now, unfortunately. They've, they've taken over. I mean, the inmates in the Democratic Party do run the asylum, but there are still Democrats that you can have reasonable conversations with that will agree on some matters and disagree on others, but can also, and this is the key, you can see eye to eye with them on a basic framework of what is true and what is not, what is real and what is not, what is fair and what is not, which has now been, with these Democrats and the sham proceeding, this has been completely abandoned. No one, no serious person thinks that that's what's really going on here. This is all meant to destroy the president of the United States. Here's what what Turley points out, for example, in an editorial in The Hill. I used to be a Hill employee, launched Hill TV, in fact. So, you know, NBD got that going for me, which is nice. Quote, the Nixon. So this wait, hold on before I get to this quote. They're saying that and this is a common refrain that this is that would shift. I'm not just saying general people. This is beyond anything Nixon did. That is a line from Adam Schiff's yesterday. He gave this sort of summations. I'm Adam Schiff, and I'm giving my grandiose closing argument about how you should get rid of the president of the United States. I mean, he doesn't sound that cool. That was sounded way better than what Schiff sounds like. But you know what I mean? A, a pompous jerk giving uh, his speech about why the president should be gone. But this is beyond. We've we've gone from this is Trump's Watergate to this is worse than Watergate, and back and forth many many times. But now we're in the, this is worse than Watergate. I mean, does anyone does anyone really believe this? Does anyone take this seriously? I think people do believe it, which is which is troubling, which is a bad sign for their judgment, uh, their ability to decipher basic facts and understand the world around them. But this is beyond anything Nixon did is what Schiff says. Let's just take a little moment. Remember, Nixon was not, in fact, impeached and removed from office. He resigned. This is what uh, one of the professors who's on Capitol, one of the four, the only sane one, the others are crazy. Uh, they're leftists. I mean, maybe they know what they're doing is absurd and they're just doing it for a purpose. But here's what he writes of the Nixon impeachment. The Nixon impeachment, quote, began with a felony crime with the Watergate burglary, then swept to encompass an array of other crimes involving political slush funds, payments of hush money, maintenance of an enemies list, directing tax audits of critics, witness intimidation, multiple instances of perjury and even an alleged kidnapping. In the end, there were nearly 70 officials charged and four dozen of them found guilty. And Nixon was named as an unindicted conspirator by a grand jury. End quote. Adam Schiff, the point man handpicked by Nancy Pelosi, 
the point man for this entire impeachment effort, is looking at you, the American people, and trying to keep a straight face, although I think Adam Schiff doesn't really do much in the way of facial expressions, but he's staring at you and telling you that all that Nixon stuff, what Trump has done, is worse than that. What honest, reasonable person could take that statement seriously? I sit here and I tell you that Trump has committed no crime, zero, with this Ukraine debacle mess. Oh, and by the way, no crime, zero, with the Mueller report. No crime, zero, with the Stormy Daniels payoff thing that they were obsessed. I mean, yeah, just go down the whole list. The emoluments clause, all, emoluments clause, all of this, no crime, no crime, no crime. And they say that this is worse? How is it worse? They keep making accusations and allegations that are false. Against Nixon, at least a lot of the stuff was true. And this is worse than that? These people are trying to throw your sense of reality into disarray. They're trying to just engage in such a fierce campaign of propaganda that you no longer understand what is true and what is not. And you just do what you're told because that's what the good people do. They are absurd, but unfortunately, they are also dangerous. What they are doing to the country right now is troubling, and it goes beyond your usual political back and forth. They are kicking at the load-bearing walls of this republic, and they do so with self-righteous smiles. This is not a good place for the country to be in. I do think that Trump is winning this impeachment battle so far, but this impeachment battle actually is about a lot more than Donald Trump. This is not about Ukraine. This is about our democracy. This is about our national security. This is about whether the American people have a right to expect that the President of the United States is going to act in their interests with their security in mind and not for some illicit personal or political reason. So Americans should care deeply about whether the President of the United States is betraying their trust in him, betraying that oath that he took to the Constitution to protect our country and defend its institutions. There you go. That's classic Adam Schiff in his little closing argument. Shifty Schiff. What is, what is he even saying? Betraying our institutions. Betraying our national security. But just how? By doing what? When they say things like demanding dirt on a political rival, or when they say things like interfering in our election, that is a lie. The president did not demand interference in the election. The president mentioned getting an answer about corruption in Ukraine, which is a legitimate foreign policy interest. If what he did is so bad, why do they have to lie about it? He did not say, give me dirt on Joe Biden. He said, if you can get some answers about this Burisma situation, Hunter Biden, let me know. I've heard bad things. The president's allowed to say that. There's the flat. I mean, is it tough politics? Yes. Do we want the president not to engage in tough politics? Do we want the president to back down from this? Because let's understand the Democrats are used to operating in a world where Democrats don't get investigated. And if they do get investigated, because what they do is egregiously criminal like Hillary Clinton, then do you know what they do? They make sure that the system is rigged. So there is no accountability. There is no justice. There is no punishment. That's what they do. So now all of a sudden Trump comes along and says, no, 
Hunter and Joe Biden don't have special immunity. There is plenty of reason. The same people, let's remember this, friends, who tell you that there was reason to investigate a presidential campaign, not somebody who maybe was going to be running for president in the future, an active presidential campaign, one of two people vying for the presidency, based on what someone said to someone in a bar, that someone being George Papadopoulos. Those same people now tell you that the son of the person who is in charge of foreign policy in a country under the Obama administration, getting 50000 to seventy-five dollars or $85,000 a month to be on the board of some company when the guy's an imbecile and a, and a derelict clown, there's no basis to look into whether there's any corruption going on there. There's certainly the appearance of corruption, and when there's the appearance of corruption, there can be an investigation of the same. These people constantly change the rules. They have no principles. They have no standards. They have a relentless pursuit for power. Don't make any mistake about that. They will do whatever they have to do in order to get the outcome that they desire. They profess that the other side is tearing down institutions while they're gathering the dynamite themselves and putting the foundations of those same institutions. They just don't care. This is the instinct of the totalitarian. Whatever they need to do to get what they want is inherently justified because what they want is good and the people who oppose it are bad. This was the same mentality of the Bolsheviks and, by the way, the Mensheviks leading into the Russian Revolution and then the Soviet Union. This is the same mentality you've seen with Pol Pot, the same mentality you see today in North Korea. Anything that the ruling regime wants must inherently be good. Therefore, any opposition to it is bad. And whatever rules you have to change, whatever injustices you have to abide or encourage or inflict, those are all also inherently just fine because you are achieving a righteous ends through your much less than righteous means. That's where we are right now in this country. Adam Schiff and the Democrats are an abject disgrace, and yet they cling to this notion that they're the good guys. President Trump's conduct, as described in the testimony and evidence, clearly constitutes impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors under the Constitution. In particular, the memorandum and other testimony relating to the July 25th, 2019 phone call between the two presidents, President Trump and President Zelensky, more than sufficiently indicates that President Trump abused his office by soliciting the president of Ukraine to investigate his political rivals in order to gain personal political advantage, including in relation to the 2020 election. Oh, Professor Feldman, you're doing such a fantastic job auditioning for MSNBC or perhaps CNN. There might be a bidding war for your services after this. Absurd. Like I said, I mean, just just go to Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School's Twitter feed and you will see the grandiose idiocy that is often rewarded at the most elite institutions in this country. The elite institutions we found more and more exist specifically to prop up many people who don't deserve it in the least. And the second you begin to challenge that, they get very irascible. They don't much appreciate the truth being exposed, whether it's elite journalism, elite academia, go through the ranks of all of it. Frauds aplenty. Good people, of course. And some, I assume, are good people, but uh, mostly frauds. That was Professor Noah Feldman. Notice how we have all these statements, all this conjecture, all this analysis. 
It certainly constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors that this guy thinks that what the president said is an abuse of power based upon the supposition, based upon the assumption that there was going to be a a follow on of pressure to get Zelensky to present information that was not true in order to harm a political rival here in the United States. I have I have a a point of not a point of order that would be like, can I have a bathroom break? But I have a point of discussion. And I like the parliamentary procedure stuff where they all bang the gavels in Congress. They're like, hear ye, hear ye. It's time for lunch. You know, they do that parliamentary stuff. I, I, I have one. Of, what if, just, just stay with me here for a second. What if there was, in fact, a corrupt arrangement involving the Bidens? People who tell me that this is settled are running cover. We don't know. H- how would we know? How would President Trump know unless he asked and got a sense of the investigation? Keep in mind, when you ask a foreign government about possible corruption involving that foreign government, when it's one of the most corrupt countries in the world, guess what? Maybe you have to push a little bit. Maybe the first answer you get is not factually accurate. Oh, good heavens. Who could think of such a thing? Maybe you have to dig. Maybe you have to exert some pressure. Use some of your connections and influence to get answers. Everything that the left tells us is premised here upon many things, but one of them is that clearly Hunter and Joe Biden did no wrong here. We saw this with Anderson Cooper at the debates. You know, these frauds at CNN, frauds, Tapper and Cooper and Lemon and Cuomo, bro Cuomo. I'll wreck your bleep, Cuomo. That guy, a.k.a. Fredo, a.k.a. bro Cuomo. Frauds. Cooper, just to show us that, you know, he's playing for playing for Team Biden as much as he can right now, uh, said, you know, there's no evidence and it is not true. However, he phrased the question that there was anything wrong going on in Ukraine. Well, CNN done a lot of investigating about that one. I don't think so. Also, why can't we ask questions here? We had a we had a number of people uh, at the top level of the United States government based on the flimsiest of evidence, using FISA procedures to go after the Trump campaign. And now we are told that there can be no investigation of anything involving Democrat Joe Biden. There was investigation of lots of stuff involving President Trump when he was running. Why why is that okay? but the Biden investigation is not? I mean, I, I fight this battle on a different level than many of my, oh, no, but can we prove the quid pro quo? No, no, no. Excuse me. There's no immunity for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. There is nothing wrong. I don't care that there is a peripheral or secondary political benefit. There is, in fact, nothing wrong with saying, can you get answers for me on whether there was corruption here? Can you look into this? Yeah, the answer is, yeah, you can look into this. Now, people have asked me this. How, what would make me change my mind? What would make me change my mind on this is if Trump had said, oh, really, there's nothing on Biden? Make something up or else you're not getting the money. Now we have a problem. Now we have abuse of power. Now we have a president. But that's not what happened at all. And no one even suggests that's what happened. The mere request to get answers about the Bidens. The Bidens, you see, because he's the Democrat frontrunner, which is a complete absurd, should be slap in the face to how stupid the Democratic Party has become. But anyway, because he's a Democrat frontrunner, he has a special immunity. Can't ask any questions about him. He's their best hope to defeat Donald Trump, which tells you a lot about the Democrats. 
But we found out something very interesting when Schiff was doing his little press conference. Um, we found out that, for example, uh, Adam Schiff has subpoenaed not just witnesses, and I have to come back to this witness point for you in a second, but Schiff has, in fact, subpoenaed phone records, too. Phone records of one of these associates of uh, Giuliani, I believe it's Parnes, Lev, Lev uh, Parnes, who have been in contact with, who was in contact with, for example, uh, Devin Nunes of Congress and Rudy Giuliani and John Solomon, my former colleague at the Hill. So now we have Schiff pulling phone records. Now, I understand there's it's, we can do this. People are going to make all this. Uh, oh, but he didn't go after the it just was, you know, uh, excuse me. It's called reverse targeting. I work in the intelligence community. I know how this stuff. I also work the NYPD intelligence division where we used to pull phone records all the time. It's not hard when you know some people are in contact. You'd be like, well, we can pretextually pull this guy's phone records and maybe we see who his psychiatrist is, too. Yeah. So uh, now whether it's strictly legal is a different question from whether it is ethical and whether if the shoe was on the other foot, the Democrats would be accepting of this. I mean, of course, this is absurd. So we can now see, and they released without redaction that there was a member of Congress, that there was uh, Giuliani and Nunes all in contact with this individual. And this is now being used. So, I mean, they're, they're treating this, they're using the powers of a criminal investigation proceeding in order to go after their political vendetta here. Understand that too. This is not a minor thing. But this is where I turn around and say, where are you, Senate Republicans? Why aren't you going to subpoena Adam Schiff's phone records? He has no special immunity here. If Schiff can subpoena the phone records that includes members of Congress, why can't, why can't, oh, oh, I have an idea. Subpoena Eric Sharamella's phone records. How about that? Let's see who the alleged whistleblower has been talking to and did talk to before the report came out. He has no, there's no special protection for his phone records. We don't even know if he's the whistleblower. How could they block it? Riddle me that. My friends, I'm enjoying taking a rhetorical sledgehammer to the absurdity on Capitol Hill today. And I, I felt like I should bring in somebody else who, who wields a, a battle axe of experience and rationality in all of these matters. Our friend Sean Davis is back in action here on the show. He is, of course, at The Federalist. He's a co-founder of The Federalist. It is one of my favorite websites. He already knows that. And he joins us now to talk about all the things. Sean, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Buck. Um, I mean, I am just talking about what's going on on Capitol Hill today. Uh, try to give me your sense of what is the Democrat play here to have a bunch of constitutional law professors, three of the four who are clearly anti-Trump partisans, and one who just didn't vote for Trump, right, but is not a, a, a wild-eyed Trump hater, tell us um, that the Founding Fathers, what they really meant when they wrote the Constitution was orange man bad. Yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it. The one thing that, you know, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists could agree on is that the bad orange man has to go. And, you know, that, that's really what the Constitution is uh, subordinate to, is getting rid of the, the orange bad man. I mean, I've I got to be honest, I, I don't know what they're doing. I, I didn't really understand the purpose of all the intel hearings that Schiff ran. I thought those were silly. They, they clearly had nothing other than uh, leftover residual anger from how the Mueller probe blew up in their faces. And, and, you know, inviting up three completely loony left-wing law professors 
one of whom said, uh, I think a year or two ago, that you don't even need evidence to impeach Trump. He's just bad enough as is that he needs to go. But, but the only thing I can think of that they're trying to accomplish here is just boring America to death. Uh, and then, you know, once we're all gone and there's no accountability for them, they, they can do whatever they want. By the way, they, when they, I was watching this morning, I, I felt like there was a point at which there was at least the one of the professors made an allusion to or, or uh, made a reference to. Well, yeah. And the president with this phone call kind of committed treason. And was I I know they said bribery, but I mean, they said that he's committed effectively all these crimes. I was waiting for him to throw piracy and counterfeiting in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, everything he does is treason because. Um, he, he's an illegitimate president, and if you're an illegitimate president, then uh, you have no right or authority to use uh, the presidential powers given you in the Constitution. And, and i got to be honest, it, watching this whole thing and, and dealing with all this, it, it's like being a house guest at a, uh, at a dinner party where the food's awful, but you kind of just got to, like, uh, keep you know, stomaching it and shoveling it down uh, to be polite. I, I kind of feel like being in the, uh, the political news industry, that's what we're having to do with this. We're having to, like, pretend that this is serious and, you know, really well put together when it, it, it's really just a complete disaster politically, legally. Uh, the, the Democrats, I think, are going to rue the day they started this. And at this point, I'm not even sure they end up actually impeaching him. Given Wow. You and my friend Raheem Kassam have both become I mean, I, I've been saying 100 percent they impeach for weeks. I'm not between you and Raheem. I'm now I'm going to I'm going to ratchet it down to 95 percent certainty. But uh, I I, because I can see what you're saying. I mean, this I don't know how anyone can hear. My favorite thing is when Schiff, Pelosi, Nadler, they all do this. We really wish we didn't have to impeach this president. Like, who believes this? Nobody. Even people I know who hate Trump aren't aren't so silly that they believe that. Well, right. My my colleague Molly Hemingway actually sat uh, behind Jerry Nadler on the Acela train shortly after the Democrats took over Congress in 2018. And, and he was blabbing on his phone to a close confidant about how, yeah, they were all in on impeachment. This is what was going to happen. Um, so this idea that, that they're somehow just doing it in sadness, not in anger. We didn't want to have to do this. It, it, it's total poppycock. This was the plan from the very beginning. It was actually the plan with Mueller. Uh, the problem was that you know, even with that sprawling, uh, you know, forty, fifty million dollar multi-year investigation, even they couldn't find anything on Trump. So now they're left having to pretend that some phone call with a Ukrainian leader is impeachment. It, it's if these people were were capable of feeling shame, they would just be horribly embarrassed now. But clearly, they're not. Now you're somebody that understands from actually doing it, uh, Senate investigations, right? You worked uh, for Senator Tom Coburn's office. Um, I want to ask you about Schiff. Pulling phone records, subpoenaing phone records. I know it's for what was for Left Parnas, but it also has included now phone contacts with a journalist, with a member of Congress, and with the president's uh, personal lawyer. How, how does that strike you? That there's now now I got a subpoena records, and I got some follow-ons on this too. Oh man, I, I think that it, it's really really concerning. And look, in general, I don't have a problem with congressional subpoena power, and in fact, it's it's that power that they delegate to the executive that allows a lot of the law enforcement functions we have. So in principle, I don't have a, a problem with committees being able to do that. Uh, in, in practice, in this case, um, if indeed he did get these via subpoena, uh, I, I'm not quite sure he did. Um, but if he did, it, it is extremely troubling to be pulling up the phone records between the president's attorneys. You know, J- Phone calls between Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani ended up on there. Pulling up phone calls from members of Congress, from their staff members, 
Uh, and this is coming from a guy who secretly colluded uh, with the whistleblower who lied about his interactions with Schiff, and then Schiff later lied about those interactions, and today is refusing to answer any questions about him. This is a huge, huge abuse of power uh, in the midst of a process that is in of itself a massive abuse of power. I, I was really, really concerned when I saw that. Uh, not It's bad that they did it with Nunes and his staff, but getting the phone records between the president's attorney – uh, get, getting the attorneys of the person you're accusing of high crimes and misdemeanors, th- that is unconscionable. Now, I, I want to know, where's the Senate on this, Sean? And, you know, we have a Senate majority, of uh, Repo- Republican majority. Why don't they subpoena Schiff's records? Because I want to see if he talk. In fact, is there, expl- is there any legal reason why they couldn't subpoena Eric Sharamella's records? Uh, no, n- none at all. Um, procedures are a little different. In the Senate, um, it tends to be a more uh, bipartisan uh, operation there. I, I think often uh, you, you have to have a certain vote or you have to have the, uh, the uh, consent of the ranking member. So it's, it's not as uh, easy in the Senate to do it as in the House, but they can do it. And in the, personally, I think the reason why they haven't is the two committees who would do this, uh, Intel and Judiciary, are not run by Republicans with any sort of reputation for having a stronger uh, work ethic or, uh, (laughs) you know, really dogged investigative skills. You know, Burr has turned over his committee to Mark Warner entirely. He's been a complete non-entity. And and Lindsey Graham, while we all enjoyed the show he put on during the Kavanaugh hearing, uh, he seems much more content to expound in green rooms than he is to uh, write letters and demand answers from the agencies he oversees. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm uh, I'm disappointed so far at, at what we've seen from Senate Republicans in the midst of all this in in general. But maybe I just my expectations, which were low, should have been should have been even lower. Um, what by the way, what, what comes what comes next in your mind? I mean, after they have this judiciary hearing today, what should we all be waiting for? What's supposed to be the next uh, trick shift have a, has up his sleeve? Well, I think next we'd actually have to see some articles of impeachment. So, so obviously what they all are wanting to head towards is a formal vote on the House floor uh, uh, to impeach the president, which is to indict him of specific high crimes and misdemeanors, and then send it to a trial in the, in the Senate where he'd either be uh, convicted or, or acquitted. Um, I, I think they're struggling with this because there aren't actually any specific crimes, and they're going to have to come up with more than just orange man bad. Um, so, so that's the next step. But I, I really think there's a chance here we don't even get there. In fact, one of Pelosi's leadership team members told uh, a Fox News reporter, Chad Pergram, the other night that, you know what, it's a really packed uh, legislative schedule from here to Christmas. And we don't even know if we can be, fit impeachment in. So we might not even get to it until 2020. So I think the longer they kick that can down the road and drag it on, the less likely they are to finally pull the trigger on it. Now, uh, Sean, I want to keep you, if I can, for a moment, because I did want to touch on this story involving a convicted uh, child porn trafficker who is bundling millions for Hillary Clinton. We're going to get to that in just a second. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. They are federally certified as a veteran owned small business and headquartered in Chicago with offices throughout the nation. Their risk mitigation experts can work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100 companies and no data or client information is ever offshored. Unlike a lot of their competitors, Global Verification Network has all employees located throughout the United States and they do not outsource or offshore any of the work you give them. 
give Global Verification Network a call, 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179. You can also go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Global Verification Network for all your back investigation and vetting needs. Leave no stone unturned. Okay, we're back here with my friend Sean Davis. He's a writer for The Federalist, co-founder of TheFederalist.com. If you're not already, you should be making The Federalist part of your daily read-in to get up uh, on all the day's events. Let's go now, Sean. Tell me what happened here. This just there's, there's an indictment that came down. This is a little complicated, some backstory, but walk us through this fellow who was a part of the Mueller probe used uh, against Trump bundling millions for Hillary Clinton and has a record of trafficking in child pornography. Tell it. Give us the necessary details here. Yeah. So I'll have to start with the disclaimer that everything I'm about to say is true. It's not made up. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not a uh, film script for a a late night lifetime movie. This all happened. So an individual by the name of George Nader was indicted with several uh, other individuals for uh, fraudulently uh, funding, funneling illegal contributions to uh, a pro-Hillary Clinton super PAC and, and to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Um, so that means they were using straw men to do donations to hide the true source of the money. Well, George Nader is an interesting character because he was actually deployed uh, by the FBI uh, against uh, the Trump campaign back in, or I should say the Trump transition back in 2016 and 2017. Uh, in fact, he was traveling around and setting up meetings for Eric Prince, um, who, who has a security business all around the world and uh, was rumored to have been a private back channel for Russia uh, between the, the Trump transition and the Russian government. Uh, we know that none of that was true, but uh, Nader uh, was actually a witness for Robert Mueller in his investigation. And he was giving him all kinds of dirt on on the Trump transition and on Eric Prince. But the weird thing is, things we never heard about while he was working for Mueller was that he is a a pedophile uh, and a child porn trafficker. In fact, he served prison time in the Czech Republic uh, for having sex with minors. Um, He had been uh, repeatedly arrested by federal authorities in the U.S. in 85 and 91, I think again in 2000. Um, for for child porn trafficking. And in fact, when Mueller's agents picked him up during the course of their investigation, they found on his electronic devices all kinds of various illegal uh, child pornography for which they never charged him. And it actually wasn't until Mueller finally closed up shop and apparently had no more use uh, for Mueller that Barr's DOJ finally came in and uh, and rung him up and charged him uh, for possession of child pornography. Uh, and then yesterday, as you said at the beginning, this guy was indicted for an illegal contribution scheme uh, to puff up Hillary Clinton. It, it is so wild uh, that you have to constantly remind yourself that this isn't fiction. This is reality. This actually happened. So the, the part of this, I mean, there's the Hillary Clinton connection, which we'll get into in a second. But just on the on the Mueller side of it. So Mueller knew about all, had to know about all of this. And usually, I mean, the FBI is very harsh and, and understandably so on anybody who is violating children and, and, uh, and possessing and transferring child pornography. M- Mueller just didn't think that. I mean, Mueller sent 30 armed agents to arrest. Well, it was really Weissman, as we know. But let's say it was Mueller to arrest Roger Stone for 
like lying about a Twitter conversation you have with somebody, but they let this guy Nader, they let it go until Trump's DOJ actually came down on him. That seems quite strange. It, it's insane, and it's not the kind of thing you would expect from a sworn officer of the law to do. Uh, I mean, think about uh, the, the potential for people to have been exploited and harmed by this individual uh, while he was given a free reign by Mueller. Um, and, and it's not too hard to imagine um, that they allowed him to keep doing this just to get his cooperation because it happened previously. And in, in fact, in previous court transcripts, um, the, the uh, his defense in previous cases argued that he should be treated leniently because he had been working with various government intelligence agencies, you know, 10, 20 years ago to help them with their efforts in uh, the Middle East. And if the details of, of all this were to get out, if he were really to have the book thrown at him, it could really harm his relationships with various Middle East leaders. So it, it's clear to me that this guy for years, if not decades, has been used as an asset by our government intelligence agencies uh, that were more than willing to look the other way uh, when this man was literally raping children and uh, and trafficking child pornography. Oh, it's it's just stunning. Um, it's sickening. And and the the Hillary Clinton bundling, right? So that's you know that just means for everybody that that's he's pulling together. Donate. Well, he's illegally doing. Let's be clear. I mean, essentially uh, fraudulently bundling large amounts of money for the Hillary Clinton campaign. I just think it's worth noting, Sean. I mean, what's the purpose of that? Well, so, so he, Nader is a is an interesting character. So he has been uh, working at the right hand of, I believe, the the Crown Prince of the United Arab Emirates. And uh, when he was allegedly taking part in this scheme, uh, it was clear that he was trying to buy influence uh, with his uh, donations to whoever he thought was going to win the election. So if you read a whole bunch of press reports, they'll say, oh, he was, he was Trump-connected. He had Trump, Trump ties. No, no, no. This is a guy who is very much cultivating access to the Clinton camp so that he could then go back to his Middle Eastern paymasters and say, hey, I'm really in good with these guys. You know, Keep paying me. I, I'm so influential. And then as soon as Trump won, the guy turned on a dime and, and, and – Beat feet over to the Trump transition to do the same thing with them. So it's clear to me that he was uh, absolutely part of a, of a foreign influence scheme uh, meant to curry favor with whoever it was he thought was going to be in power. And just and just one one more point of, of clarity here for everybody and his connection to uh, why did Mueller find him useful, the child pornographer? Uh, Nader was was loosely connected to Eric Prince, the founder of the the firm formerly known as Blackwater, um, who had been rumored falsely to have been set up by the Trump transition as a secret private back channel between the incoming Trump government and the Russians. And it was Nader who helped set up uh, meetings overseas, naturally. You can do certain things overseas with our government that you can't do uh, uh, within our boundaries. So he was setting up certain meetings overseas for Prince and and uh, and you, in Emiratis and various Arab leaders, and it was at these meetings where there just happened to be Russians there. And, wait, and so wait, he said he must have set up the Seychelles meeting then. Yes, he, uh, Nader set that up. Right. So he's this like influence peddler because that remember that was there was a time when that was oh that was where the Russian collusion really happened. Yeah, I, I view Nader honestly as an analog. Stephen Halper. You had Stephen Halper going around and setting up these meetings and making sure Flynn was seated next to certain people so then he could go report back and say, oh, yeah, he was talking to Russians the whole time. I think he might be a traitor. It, it appears to me, based on the facts at hand, uh, that Nader was doing something extremely similar. 
Uh, wow. I mean, you know, this is that's just remember, everybody, your Mueller, your tax dollars at work. This is the guy that that he was was leveraging in, in this whole process. Sean, man, always illuminating. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out the Federalist dot com. Uh, Sean's latest will be up there uh, shortly. Sean, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. About our Constitution and its values and my review of the evidentiary record. And here, Mr. Collins, I would like to say to you, sir, that I read transcripts of every one of the witnesses who appeared in the live hearing because I would not speak about these things without reviewing the facts. So I'm insulted by the suggestion that as a law professor, I don't care about those facts. But everything I read on those occasions tells me that when President Trump invited, indeed demanded foreign involvement in our upcoming election, he struck at the very heart of what makes this a republic to which we pledge allegiance. There you have another one. I'm probably the most hysterical of all the uh, lawyers today, or professors, I should say. I don't know how many of them have law degrees. Professors on Capitol Hill and this uh, tear down Trump effort. And uh, I got a note that she has problems with reading comprehension, it seems, saying that the president demanded foreign interference. That's just that's just taking words and then pretending words mean things other than those words mean. That's all she's doing. The president did not demand and the president did certainly not demand foreign interference. This is only possible if you take this expansive definition of things like foreign interference to be anything that would be good for Trump and bad for Democrats. That's now foreign interference in the election. This is absurd. It's bonkers. Well, this is where we are. But I wanted to switch gears here for a second. I know we've talked a lot about the uh, nonsense going on on Capitol Hill and all of the Democrat hysterics around how the president's the worst president ever and the most clearly you know, impeach impeachment worthy and all this other stuff. Um, foreign, you know, you know where there is real foreign interference that has been going on. Uh, the United States in Iran. Now you won't see much news coverage of this. It's much more important to have these wannabe MSNBC pundits telling you that the worst thing, the the greatest fear of the founding fathers was Donald Trump. I think they have that quite backwards, by the way. Uh, but that's much more important to most of the media than, for example, what seems to be the beginnings of the greatest challenge to the Iranian mullahs, to that theocracy and kleptocracy in Iran in 40 years, which is going on right now. Gas prices there have spiked. The economy is in bad shape. Um, It has been contracting. They are in recession and uh, next year's recession is expected to be even worse. And the Iranian people are fed up. So they have been protesting. They've been protesting in such numbers that the Iranian thugs, the uh, the regime's own version of the the brown shirts that go around beating people and shutting down dissent. And uh, they have killed at least 200 people. It looks like it'll be more like 300 here when they finally start, when, when they look at the body count as of today. Opening fire on demonstrators, live fire bullets, just, just mowing down protesters in different places across the country. And as you know, you don't have to kill a lot of protesters who are peacefully expressing their feelings on something in public before other protesters get scared. So killing a few hundred protesters is meant to shut this whole thing down. 
but you have a, a, a hike in fuel prices about 50 percent over the last month. You have hundreds of protesters killed. And here's what and this was a, a fantastic piece today in The New York Post on this issue from Leal Leibovitz. Uh, while Iran right now is perhaps closer than ever before to ousting the authoritarian, the, the fascistic mulocracy that's in place. Here's what the so-called geniuses in our media, the policy experts in our media, were saying. Quote, writing in February, New York Times, Tehran correspondent Thomas Erdbrink described a nation standing behind its government. Braving a drenching rain, he wrote, Iranians came out in droves to march up Revolution Street to the Capitol's Freedom Monument for a huge state-backed rally commemorating the 40th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution. Erdbrink also described Iranians parading effigies of Trump. But a reader would get a little sense, a little sense of the regime's brutality and its internal crisis of legitimacy that would explode a few months later. You could hear a similar story on public radio where PRI's popular show, The Conversation, warned this summer that Trump's sanctions would prove catastrophic. The president's hard measures, the show suggested, would yield the classic rally around the flag effect. Iranians are critical of their government's economic policies, but they also blame Trump for the hardship from sanctions. The same conventional wisdom came from Newsweek's David Brennan, predicting just last month that Trump's treatment of Iran will ensure America remains the great Satan for many years to come. Colin Lynch, foreign policy senior diplomatic correspondent, touted an academic poll in October that found conclusively that Trump's sanctions had increased Iranian hostility toward the United States and boosted the popularity of Iranian hardliners. Gordon, Philip Gordon, the Council on Foreign Relations, etc. I mean, we just go down this whole list. The foreign policy establishment had no idea that the Iranians were about to rise up against their own government. In fact, were predicting the opposite would happen and were making that prediction clearly because it was a way of saying Trump has done the wrong thing. Here's how the thinking of the foreign policy. By the way, I worked at the Council on Foreign Relations. and I know how these people do this stuff. Here's how the thinking of the foreign policy echo chamber works. A few people who almost always are left-leaning and Democrat shills will come out with something, and then other people try to parrot that, maybe add a little bit to it, put their own spin on it, but they want to be within that consensus because that's what the smart people are saying. That's what the, that's what the dominant narrative becomes. Okay, well, in this case, what was driving the narrative? Trump got us out of the Iran nuclear deal and put sanctions back on Iran. What was the single most important foreign policy decision of the Obama administration? The single most important move was the Iran nuclear deal. Trump has gotten us out of that, I would say, uh, fool, foolish and, and eventually catastrophic deal. But because they're all little Obama partisans in the foreign policy echo chamber, do you know what happens? They have to come. They know what the conclusion must be. Trump is wrong. What Trump has done is bad. Therefore, their analysis turns into, well, clearly the Iranians will rally around their regime. It'll strengthen the Iranian regime. What Trump did will strengthen the Iranian regime because what Obama did was going to somehow weaken the Iranian regime. What Obama did was throw the Iranian regime an economic lifeline, give it access to foreign currency reserves, 
much better economic prospects, international banking system, selling its oil. I mean, all these things that, that need that the Iranian regime needs to stay in power. How could anybody not see that Obama's catastrophically stupid Iran deal was going to do only one thing, help the mullahs? Whereas Trump putting sanctions on them saying, sorry, we're out of this thing. You guys are a pariah state again. The people in that country are going to look around and say, all this because we have a regime that refuses to stop being a terrorist state, pursuing nuclear ambitions in violation of treaties and in violation of international law. No, the people in Iran are like, this is crazy. You have to remember, you know, Iran is a is a sophisticated country. With you know centuries of of cultural cohesion and you know people that are very they do put a, a premium on education. I mean, there's a sophistication, there's an urbaneness to the Iranians. I mean, the Iranian people would be, if given the chance, allies of the West. Not all of them, of course. They're people that are parts of the regime and people that are little stooges of the regime and you know the military and everything. But you know there is this youthful movement in Iran to get something better going, here we are at a point where perhaps the regime is facing a more direct challenge than at any point since 2009 when Obama, or was it 2010, when Obama basically didn't do anything to help them, uh, the big champion of freedom, but didn't do anything to help the Iranian, uh, Iranian anti-Mullah movement. But here we are, and the experts got the whole thing wrong all along because what was more important to them? What made them seem more sophisticated to their peers? What was more likely to get them published in the New York Times or you know, Foreign Affairs, the publication of the Council on Foreign Relations, or any of these places? What was more likely to advance them personally? Orange man bad. Trump is wrong. Iran is going to rally around its leadership. Now Iranian... Iranian uh, police and security forces are mowing down protesters because people are so fed up with their stupid, incompetent regime. Nobody in our intelligentsia, nobody in the foreign policy establishment seemed to see this coming. Why is that? Because, my friends, whether it's domestic or foreign policy, if it's any matter, Trump derangement syndrome blinds people to what is really going on, and it becomes all-encompassing. It is the gateway drug to a totalitarian mindset. That's what Trump derangement syndrome really is. 11 months ago at the launch of our campaign in Oakland, I told you all that I am not perfect, but I will always speak with decency and moral clarity and treat all people with dignity and respect, that I will lead with integrity and I will speak the truth. And so that's what I've tried to do every day of this campaign. And here's the truth today. I've taken stock and I've looked at this from every angle. And over the last few days, I have come to one of the hardest decisions of my life. So here's the deal, guys. Um, My campaign for president simply does not have the financial resources to continue and the financial resources we need to continue. I'm not a billionaire. I can't fund my own campaign. And as the campaign has gone on, it has become harder and harder to raise the money we need to compete. In good faith, I cannot tell you, my supporters and volunteers, that I have a path forward if I don't believe I do. Kamala Harris, my friends, the most overhyped candidate with the possible exception of Beto O'Rourke. Her campaign is no more. For some updates on that and also 
uh, a, a look into what's going on on the Democrat campaign trail where she just was. We have our friend Tiana Lowe back in the house. She is a commentary writer at the Washington Examiner. Tiana, good to have you. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right, let's do a little autopsy of the Kamala Harris campaign, shall we? Tell me uh, what what happened here. What happened with Kamala? So Kamala was always a paper tiger. You know, she it was kind of dumb luck and good connections that enabled her to win her original district attorney race in San Francisco. And then, you know, her and Newsom have been kind of backed by the same Pacific Heights machine that catapulted him to the governorship and her uh, to the Senate. You know, she was pretty untested, politically speaking. She was she was a top cop, an aggressive prosecutor who spent her time locking up the mothers of truant children and incarcerating nonviolent first-time drug offenders. That was her legacy in California, but she had the attractive visage and the relative, um, you know, uh, competence on stage. She gave a good speech. She questioned people well. But as we saw in those debates, once she was the one under fire, she completely crumbled. Do you think the the Tulsi moment was something that she just couldn't really shake off? Oh, absolutely. That was the turning point because, you know, at – Early on, the media was fully in the tank for Harris. You know, they were touting this this first-term senator who wound up polling sixth in her own state as, as presidential material. And really, what was she famous for? What has she done in the Senate? Nothing. And it's not like she was Barack Obama, where she had already had this national career thanks to incredible book writing. She was really just being touted as the next big thing because she looked the part and she could speak the part when she was untested. But she would always crumble under fire. You know, I mean, she came across more looking like a bully during the Kavanaugh hearings, whereas someone like Amy Klobuchar used it to her advantage to come across as very careful and prosecutorial. Kamala just seemed like a cop. And so what Tulsi managed to do, she managed to take the talking points that all of us in California knew for years, which is that she was deeply corrupt, deeply carceral. Um, extremely hostile towards nonviolent offenders of all kinds, including sex workers and drug addicts. Um, and she managed to force the mainstream media to address it. I mean, it. I mean it's, it's kind of remarkable because what I, I know you're from California. Well, what you're really telling me here is she wasn't even really popular in California. <laughs> she wasn't even no, like she wasn't. But she was she was very popular with the kind of champagne liberal who can sit around sipping Chardonnay in the middle of the day because they don't have a job to get to and moaning and fulminating that Donald Trump is president. She was not well-liked by the working class in the middle of the state, by the working class in Oakland. That is not who she favored, because those are the people she was trying to lock up. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad you have here, because you, know, you, you are going to be more of an expert uh, on, on the particular subject of, of sexism than I can be, because, of course, I'm a male, so I can't, I can't speak to it from the... <laughs> You're pers- not allowed to have an opinion. Yeah, I'm not allowed to have an opinion. I can't speak from the eye perspective. But I did think it was just so classic that there were, there were a lot of allegations of, of sexism about why her campaign didn't catch on more. I even saw some allegations people were saying about, well, racism and how the Democratic Party... Although Cory Booker is still in this and Tulsi Gabbard is still a minority, which I think is fascinating. The Democrats kind of take that o- away from her, too. Uh, but but I thought it was really interesting because when you look at Kamala's campaign, she wasn't even able to dent the support among African-Americans that Joe Biden had. So I mean, how, how is her lack of success having to do with racism? It makes no sense. 
No, I mean, if anything, the person with the most legitimate axe to grind about the media coverage, other than Tulsi and I would say Andrew Yang, is Joe Biden. Think about it. Kamala was able to instigate an entire two-week media cycle about federally mandated busing because she smeared the first vice president to a black president as racist for not mandating and endorsing enforceable, like, federal busing. She got all the media treatment she could have possibly asked for. Everyone was fawning over her as though she was Hillary 2.0, and thus that's how she fared out. And now the deflection, the acting as though this is a product of racism, when actually, if anything, she got more favorable coverage. And I'm not sure, I don't think it's because of her race, but there's no question that she in particular got more favorable coverage than, let's say, a Cory Booker type figure. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest also. Like, if sexism was was the issue that prevented Kabbalah, I mean, Elizabeth Warren is crushing her in the polls, and it's not, you know, Elizabeth Warren is kind of like everybody's, you know, hectoring librarian. I mean, I'm kind of amazed that she's done as well as she has, but clearly sexism is not the problem. Yeah, no, it's definitely not a sexism thing. And also consider the Democratic electorate was more than happy to make Hillary Clinton their nominee just three years ago. So we're speaking to, we're speaking to Tiana Lowe. She's a commentary writer for The Examiner, guys. And uh, Tiana, you were just up in New Hampshire um, covering the Yang Gang. Tell us what's going on there. Yes, I'm still uh, thawing out from the first snowstorm of the season, apparently. So that is kind of incredible that there were feet of snow and people were still driving out hours and hours and hours. The amount of people I saw in western New Hampshire who had driven all the way from Massachusetts just to see Yang in a brewery, um, just to see Yang at a college doing these town halls. You know, he is, the way he delivers his stump speech honestly reminds me a little bit of Donald Trump. Like the president, Yang reads the room extremely well. He knows how to sort of incorporate a little bit of stand-up while he's issuing extremely dire warnings about automation and about the future of our workforce. Um, I would be shocked if he doesn't wind up overperforming the polls in New Hampshire, at least, because that base is extremely motivated, and they'll be opening up their 10th field office in the state. Uh, this week. Now, I, I don't want to make you speak again from the eye perspective on this, but I, I guess I'm about to, because uh, I know you, you have some uh, a- Asian parentage. I would ask you to, to explain to me if you think that it's fair to criticize the Democratic Party for tre- it does not ever seem to me like they think of Yang as a minority, which is fascinating no, to it- me. Like when they talk about no. diversity and minorities, Andrew Yang is never they don't get excited about the prospect of the first Asian American presidential candidate, never mind possibly president. Why is that? The intersectional left, so not all liberals, but the intersectional left has never been able to reconcile two pivotal minorities, Jews and East Asians, because despite both facing wild amounts of adversity, I mean consider it's within the century that Japanese citizens of the United States were interned without any due process. And it's well known at this point that elite institutions discriminate against Asian Americans when it comes to college admissions in the same way they did to Jews 100 years ago. Um, They've never been able to reconcile that despite that level of discrimination, Asian Americans and Jewish Americans outperform every other demographic on almost every measure when it comes to income, when it comes to professional achievement. And so because they see those outcomes, they just... You know, Jews don't get the minority card. Asian-Americans don't get the minority card. So they're just kind of left out to dry. And much less, I mean, we see this a lot in corporate America, too, and in academia. 
there is sort of an expectation that Asian Americans will be successful, that they'll get the McKinsey job, but they'll never get the top McKinsey job, that they'll get into Harvard, but they won't be the head of the poli-sci department. Instead, they'll be relegated to a quieter field like STEM. So it really is quite remarkable, and I think a positive sign of progress that Andrew Yang is running for the top job, and he's doing so as an actual entrepreneur, as someone who understands how jobs are made, rather than these other candidates who have bragged they haven't worked a day in their life creating another job for another American. Now, I mean, I would I would assume that certain, I mean, I know this from friends of mine who are recognizable as conservatives, particularly people who, for example, work for Fox News. You're around certain Democrat constituencies, and there's a, there's a tremendous... There's a hostility, you know, and if you're considered from a right of center publication or channel, there's a hostility from Bernie Sanders supporters, certainly from Biden supporters, from Warren supporters. Did you feel at this when when Yang's people were around, did it feel a little bit more inclusive of at least alternative points of view and opinions? Because one of the knocks against Yang and Tulsi from the left has been their willingness to engage, at least not to agree with because they're both very left wing, but to engage with the other side. I just want to know from your first person perspective of being out there, did you feel like you could actually talk to the Yang supporters and they weren't going to throw anything at you? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's because, you know, Yang's whole pitch, he's obviously very anti-Trump, but Yang's whole pitch is that Trump was focusing on problems that clearly the Democratic establishment were ignoring. The, 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 The correct response to make America great again was not America is always great. It's focusing on the problems that are affecting Americans. That's something that Yang really cares about. Very interesting. I met a couple. I met a couple, a husband and a wife. She had voted for Hillary in 2016, and him for Trump. But they were both so disaffected by both parties that that's why they were there. There were lots of Bernie, former Bernie supporters, former Trump supporters, former Hillary supporters. It really was a hodgepodge of people who've just felt failed by the system and failed by the lives of politicians. And it was very, very open to media, and it was not hostile at all. Um, it, it was quite heartening to see people who really hadn't had a horse in the race, saw a candidate they liked because of his ideas, not because of his demagoguery. Any predictions as we go into the uh, Democrat December debate here for who you think either might uh, really have a moment or who you think might make it on that stage? It's a surprise. Just what, you know, give us anything. Tiana's look into the future of this Democrat field. So assuming that both Yang and Tulsi get their last required poll to make it to the debate, this will be an eight-person debate stage, which I think will be a good thing because, I'm sorry, these these debates with 12 people screaming at each other, no one cares, no one hears anything of substance. The eight people is a lot more manageable field. This is kind of the do-or-die time, honestly, I think, for Elizabeth Warren, who's been trailing somewhat in the polls to Bernie and Bernie's, you know, had the support of the squad, and he's coming back better than ever, even though he's a 78-year-old who just had a heart attack and he refused to release his medical records. So Elizabeth Warren, if she wants to dominate that progressive lane, now is the time to strike. She needs to make the case that she'll do a better job actually getting something done, unlike Bernie, who spent 40 years in Congress doing nothing except for pontificating. Um so I think that's obviously a big deal. It's just going to be another instance of can Biden manage to make it three hours without talking about corn popper of hairy legs. And hopefully, I mean, it's a candidate like Amy Klobuchar, who also could occupy that center lane. If she wants to make it to the top, she needs to start throwing some punches. Tiana Lowe, everybody, Washington examiner for her latest. You can also follow her on Twitter at Tiana Lowe. Tiana, thanks so much. Great to talk to you. We'll have you back soon. Thank you, Buck.
I watched his team's jaws drop to the floor, Monsieur Justin Trudeau says. So we would play that audio for you just because it's everywhere all over the Internet right now and all the news cycle. It is a number of leaders. I think it's uh, Trudeau and Boris Johnson and um, somebody else. Who? Oh, Macron. Macron, who actually does kind of sound like this. So, But he's like French. He's not... Trudeau is like, I am uh, chopping down wood in a lumberjack shirt in the far north of Canada, right? Exactly. But but Macron is like, I am uh, spitting in your cafe au lait while I give you the most old croissant we have because we hate you American swine. You know, there's a different, a different variation of the French thing. Uh, I know Trudeau doesn't have an accent. Don't send me the people who send me the most book. You don't sound like Trudeau at all. Of course not. It's ridiculous. I don't sound like Hillary either. Hello! But everyone knows exactly who I'm talking about. What happened? Uh, she's, she might still come back. Do not, do not think that uh, Hillary is totally done, donezo, because uh, she may still, we'll, well, whatever, we'll talk about that more another day. Um, but you had a bunch of world leaders here who, you know, came together. It looked like they were being a little gossipy about how Trump took a 40-minute press conference before they even sat down to do the real press conference. And now the president left and he left a little bit earlier. And you know, I don't, look, he doesn't he doesn't like what uh, what he heard here from Trudeau. And I, I think it's a fair thing to say that this president does not look. He does not take personal insults or criticism well or lightly. That is all true. Here is what Trump says. Play clip three, if you would, my man, Brandon. Well, he's too fast. Do you think that Germany is too nice? And honestly, with Trudeau, he's a nice guy. I, I find him to be a very nice guy. But, you know, the truth is that uh, I called him out on the fact that he's not paying 2%. And I guess he's not very happy about it. I mean, you were there. A couple of you were there. And uh, he's not paying 2%. And he should be paying 2%. It's Canada. They have money. And they should be paying 2%. So I called him out on that. And I'm sure he wasn't happy about it. But that's the way it is. Look, I'm representing the U.S. And... He should be paying more than he's paying, and he understands it. So I can imagine I can imagine he's not that happy, but that's the way it is. And I'm troubled but not surprised to see that there are a lot of liberals who, when this happens, they take the position that, oh, isn't it great that these world leaders would be mocking Trump in this way? You know, guys, when you're talking about the president of the United States and his counterparts for foreign countries— it would really be nice if you if your first impulse was to root for the home team a little bit, Libs, just a little bit. I'm not saying all the time, but, you know, at some point there there does need to be this restoration of the sense of of our country, our people, our guy, our leaders could be our gal at some point in the future. Um, but Democrats, no, they they would applaud, they would laugh, they would love um, mockery of the president. That's not even in a in a just a per, strictly personal sense. This is the president representing our interests at NATO, and a bunch of world leaders are caught. You know, and by the way, what they said wasn't that bad. I'm not I'm not trying to be. You know, we shouldn't be babies about this either. But you know, they they're like mocking the president Trump a little bit. But what's so interesting is, do you think any of those world leaders would ever, ever have the I have to find a better word, but gall to say that to his face. I don't think uh, Trudeau would be like, excuse me, Trump. I want to say this to your face now. Uh -uh. Black Rifle Coffee is celebrating its fifth year anniversary. So to celebrate, they started Black Rifle Friday. Look, I know it sounds like a fictional holiday, you know, like Valentine's Day, which is just a cash grab. But 
you know, you wouldn't be wrong. But since it's actually Black Rifle's fifth year anniversary, and in the spirit of radical transparency, which is a thing Black Rifle's really into, Black Rifle Coffee's making an early play for your holiday spending with new products, special discounts, and extra perks for coffee club members. Not a coffee club member? No problem. Sign up and see all the great benefits you get when you belong to the most patriotic coffee club in the country. Let me tell you, I start every day with a delicious cup of Black Rifle coffee. My favorite roast is Silencer Smooth, but I also like Freedom Blend or Caffeinated as Blank. Check them all out. They're delicious. Don't choose basic batch coffee. Go with America's coffee, Black Rifle coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck to get 20% off your first purchase. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Again, 20% off your first purchase, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Heavy. Ceasefire is holding very much so, and I think people are surprised. And maybe someday they'll give me credit, but probably not. But it worked out well. They've been trying to do this for a hundred years. That border is a mess for a long time. We pulled our soldiers out, we took over the oil. We have soldiers where the oil is. That's the way I like it. And uh, they can police their own border, and that's what they're doing. They can use other countries if they want, if they want to spend. the time and energy they can do, but this is a border that's been under siege for many, many decades, and it was time for us to leave, and we left, and it's been holding very nicely, so we're very happy. We talked about that. So Trump was talking to Angela Merkel. Hello, everybody. I have missed you. Is Angela. Guten Tag. Angela sitting there with Trump and they're talking about Syria. And a lot of journalists of course, decided that they would um, bash Trump for saying that they've they've got the oil or whatever. Well, Trump, what Trump is saying, and we, you know, this is one of the more frustrating and and childish things that you continue to see from the media. What Trump is trying to say here is is that they have secured the oil field so that they cannot be used by the Islamic State because the Islamic State needs money to pay its fighters to buy weapons and. Supplies. So what he is saying is that the Islamic State won't be able to do that because we have soldiers that have grabbed the oil fields in eastern Syria to secure them, not to plunder them. This isn't I'm saying people say this is colonialist. And but one of the annoying games that the left will not stop playing uh, is that they act like they can't understand what Trump is, is really saying. They, they pretend that they have no ability to understand intent when he speaks. And it's, oh, yeah, Trump just whatever he says is what he says. And now there's all this media focus on uh, this is this is on Drudge right now. Macron blasts stolen gossip footage filmed without permission. Now Trump caught on hot mic gossiping about Trudeau and Boris plays it safe. Uh, my friends, I sit here and I say to you. Nobody will remember any of this in a day or two. This is just a media. This is a media obsession. What I am hoping they will remember is that there will uh, th- that there will be a time at which we can go back and look at the way the Trump administration has gone about its foreign policy, and its foreign policy is just frankly superior to what we saw for eight years of his predecessor, and I would argue what we saw under the Bush administration too. Um, the Bush administration made decisions on the foreign policy front that are very hard to defend in retrospect. And, you know, Trump comes back from this NATO summit. What what really matters? 
And this is a recurring theme whenever we talk about this country, its politics, and, and how President Trump plays a role in all of this. What really matters that uh, there was this little interpersonal spat involving Trudeau and Trump and, you know, who are these other Macron? Macron, Trudeau, I wonder which one of them, if they have a contest to see who is more beloved by the left and by the, the fancy European types, who is more... I think they like, you know, Trudeau has got a little more uh, left-wing glamour. They like him a little bit more. Uh, but when you look at the way that NATO contributions are going to be up over, already up over $120 billion, I think maybe 140 and will be hundreds of billions when it's all said and done because of pressure that Trump put on the alliance, essentially by publicly shaming them. You know what happens when you point out that people aren't doing what they're supposed to do? They tend to get a little bit upset. They tend to be unhappy with that. And so that there would be pushback from some of these leaders is not in the least bit surprising uh, because they're the ones being called out by a president in front of their own constituencies. Uh, so, you know, that's the reality. Um, that they're going to, of course, be upset about this, and we should not be in the least bit surprised. So I think that Trump is doing a pretty good job when all said and done uh, on foreign policy, and he's not getting any credit for it whatsoever. He's doing a good job with NATO as well. People are saying that Trump is the biggest. I want to say people. I mean, like the heads of the Democratic Party. I mean, the biggest media outlets in the country. I don't mean random, you know, people. Uh, they're saying that this president is a threat, a threat to NATO, and that NATO may not survive beyond him. Meanwhile, NATO is actually thriving. Um, one, one thing that I wanted to uh, return to here for a second that I, I hadn't had a chance to spend as much time on as I did, uh, as, I, as I had initially intended to. Um, remember when we, there was this gun case the Supreme Court heard last week? Okay, you know, this hits kind of close to home for me because I'm here in New York City and you know, I, I don't own a firearm here because the process is so annoying and I'm busy. And, I, I, it, and that's, what, that's what they hope. They hope that the process is so annoying and busy that you won't enjoy your Second Amendment rights. And for those of you that say, oh, Buck, how bad is it? No, it's really bad. It's a lot of paperwork. It's expensive. It's time consuming. You have to show up in person to one place in the whole city. And they, you got to wait until the person that doesn't even care to see you sits down with you and fingerprints you and everything else. And this is a perfect example of the way that liberals like to view the law. This was from the oral arguments about this New York City gun case. And, you know, you won't see there won't be much media coverage of this and nobody will really uh, nobody will really particularly care about that uh, on the left, of course, because they don't want people to understand how absurd this is. But remember, this law that New York passed that then withdrew because I knew the law was garbage was that in New York City, it would be illegal for you to legally own a gun and leave the city with your gun to go to anywhere else in New York State. So they're creating this little special category of law where you can only have your gun in New York City. You can't have your gun in New York State, even though New York City is a part of New York State. So, you know, how do and you have a Second Amendment right to have a firearm. So how do they square all this? And they pull the law. But what's so interesting is that the city of New York, its lawyers... Uh, were asked the question as to whether or not there would be, a, you know, what what the law actually means when you're traveling with your firearm to go to a range, you have to take the most direct route. 
you have to take the most direct route. And so theoretically, you could be arrested. You know, if you're staying at your buddy Bill's house and they find you with your locked, remember, locked legal firearm there, you would be in violation of the law and could be arrested if you said, well, no, hold on, I'm going to arrange tomorrow. You know, because that would be an end run on their bizarre law, right? I mean, if it's just you can have a premise permit to the range and back. Well, what's to the range and back? Is it what's the timeline? And this seems like it's in the minutia of the law, but it's really not at all. Because the whole notion that this is you can only have it in your home. It can't leave your home. Well, then how could you ever fire your gun? No, you need to be able to carry a weapon on you, folks. This is what this really comes down to. You need to be able to either open or conceal carry, but you have to be able to carry, or you have to at least be able to transport your weapon. This is, in this case, it's not even open or concealed carry. It's just locked in a box, a locked ammunition box. But Justice Gorsuch asked this. This was from the transcript when the oral arguments were, uh, were heard last week at the Supreme Court. I just want to circle back to the direct and continuous travel requirement of the current rule and Justice Alito's question about visiting your mother. Is it now the city's position that any reasonable stops are permissible. City's lawyer, Mr. Deering, that is our enforcement reasonably necessary stops in the course of travel. Justice Gorsuch, reasonably necessary. Mr. Deering, yeah, permissible. Justice Gorsuch, now does that include stopping to visit your mother? Deering, I haven't, uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch, um, or use the endearing says, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Justice Gorsuch, what about getting a cup of coffee? I mean, is a cup of coffee reasonably necessary? Deering, depends on who you ask. But the police department has affirmed and we have made clear the enforcement position is that a stop for a cup of coffee is not a problem. Okay, what I know, what I can represent because it's come up before Uh, coffee, restrooms, food, gas, and kinds of things that you ordinarily would stop for in the course of travel. I haven't considered the mother-in-law example before. I think that's going to need to play out in the courts. This is how liberals like laws to be, my friends, especially in an area where they want to create a, a perception of possible criminal jeopardy Beyond the actual text of the law or beyond the initial intent of the law. One of the ways that they prevent people like me, and this is this is the same you'll see in many other cities and counties across the country. One of the ways they prevent people like me from getting a firearm is because when you understand, when you really know the way that the left approaches firearms ownership and the law, they want it to be murky. They want it to be precarious. They want it to be unclear, uncertain whether, in fact, you are in compliance with the law. They would prefer that it be left up to your up to their discretion whether or not you get prosecuted, because then somebody who is cautious and especially if you are conservative and openly so and don't feel like you're going to get a fair shake in the in the judicial system on an issue like this, which I do not believe that I would. You just say, well, if they can't even tell me what's legal and what's not. I don't want to subject myself to, well, go fight it out in court. Understand this. It needs to play out in the courts. This is the city's lawyer. This is, of course, a liberal liberal city, liberal lawyer on a liberal anti-gun policy. What that means is, yeah, we're going to arrest some people. And when those people, after they've been arrested, facing felony gun charge, by the way, go to prison. They can take you to prison for this. 
probably get processed, you know, get get taken down to what they call the tombs here. Maybe you get sent to Rikers for the weekend if you got to get held, if you can't get bail in time. And who knows? Rikers Island is the major prison facility here in New York. It's a scary place. Uh, but, you know, it'll play out of the courts. This is capricious judicial tyranny. Oh, this is capricious legal tyranny. This is what they want. They want you to never really know if you're in compliance or not, because then you err on the side of, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't want this to be something that I have to even think about, that I have to deal with. It's unacceptable to me to have to make these uh, allowances for the state to imprison me. This should be, I, I, I hope the Supreme Court just just slam. I mean, it's by the way, of course, it's going to be five, four because the liberals in the court don't like guns. Doesn't matter. They don't believe the Second Amendment. They don't like guns. It doesn't matter what the law says. Doesn't matter what the precedents are. Anything gun related, you know, Sotomayor and Kagan and Ginsburg, you know, they're just going to just every time it's it's like clockwork. They hate guns. They hate gun owners. They the whole thing. Um but I hope that the conservative, alleged conservative majority, though, Roberts, yet another. Who are the really good judges? Thomas? Alito? You know, I think you could argue that uh, Gorsuch is really solid. And I think that uh, we'll have to see. But I think the Kavanaugh will be very good. Uh, we have to see. We don't know yet. But Roberts, iffy. Trump's judges, I think, better than the judges that were appointed by Bush, which is something we should all keep in mind. But I hope that they slam this down because there's a, there's a principle at work here. The state should not be passing felony, uh, felony statutes or the city should not be enforcing felony city ordinances. I mean, sending people to prison or taking away people's freedom or even just taking away their firearm or giving them a fine. It doesn't matter. They should not be able to punish people under laws that they themselves do not know the extent of and are not certain about how they would be enforced. It makes a mockery of the law. And that they know is such a shaky law that they'll even pull a part of it before the Supreme Court can even review it. They shouldn't be playing these kinds of games. This is the part, the, the most intrusive part of the state of government in your life has to do with criminal law and, and regulations with the force of criminal law. That's the one place where you should be the most concerned. You know, they talk about Trump. Trump is not going to lock you up. Local police in a blue majority city in order to make a point, especially if you're like a, a reasonably, you know, reasonably successful middle class tax peg individual who happens to be a Republican and owns firearms. If they can make an example of you. And I know I remember the Wittichek case. In D.C., I, I remember talking to that guy. I remember, they, they wanted that because D.C., New York, same politics. They wanted to send this father and businessman with no criminal record to prison because he had a spent shotgun shell cartridge in his home, and I think also replica fifty caliber ammunition for a you know a flintlock or black powder rifle. So essentially a. A little ball, a little like a lead ball. He had that just as a, as a keepsake from when he went shooting in Virginia. They wanted to send him to prison for that. This is idiocy. This is, but it's intentional. It's it's viciousness too because they know that that's what happens, and that's that's why when I saw this, you know, you're asking the city of New York, hey, if if you have your firearm, your legal firearm that you've gone through all the hoops to get, and you stop to get a cup of coffee 
can the cops arrest you if they find out that you got a firearm and you're stopping to get a cup of because that's not going to the range. No, we've told the cops they probably shouldn't arrest you for that. Okay, what if you stop at your mother-in-law's house? You got to bring her medication. Let's let that play out in the courts. Oh, okay. So you get to get arrested. If you're that guy, someone out there is going to get arrested under this policy. And then it's up to them to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and go through all this nonsense. So then eventually the city could be like, okay, well, you know, maybe we won't ruin your life and throw you in prison, you know, with rapists and murderers because you stopped at grandma's house or your mother-in-law's house on your way to the range with your gun in a lockbox. Welcome to the uh, left-wing tyranny they want for all of us. I understand it can be a little bit awkward when you have to think about life insurance. You don't want to have to consider what would be unthinkable, but you have to prepare for an uncertain future and make sure that your family is safe and secure. I've gone through this process myself. It's something you need to do, and you should go to the place that makes it easy for you. No hassle. That's Ethos Life Insurance. Ethos is modern life insurance for people who just don't want to waste time with fine print extra appointments or fees they really just can't afford. Ethos has a simple approach. They take industry expertise and they blend it with technology so that you can find the right policy to protect your loved ones in just a matter of about 10 minutes. And you can apply online. You should check it out for yourself. You'll be taking the first steps to ensure that your family has the financial security they need in case of the unexpected. This is the responsible thing to do. Get a fast, free, and personalized quote right now at ethoslife.com. That's ethoslife.com life insurance that actually fits your life. Team, I'm sorry to inform you all that uh, we let, and, and if you were watching on Pluto TV, you might have even seen it, we let producer Brandon try to set up so that he could say hi to Bon Jovi, because producer Brandon is living on a prayer right now. He's very happy about this. We had Bon Jovi in the vicinity, does have good hair, I will say, gray, but flowing, luxurious, and producer Brandon tried to get it, but he, he disappeared on us, man. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You got out of here before you could get that selfie with him. You were going to get a selfie for Team Buck. I was. uh, Didn't manage to get it done. Next time, though. I mean, I I, I don't know. I'm kind of like a a fanboy, I guess, even though I've been in radio for like 15 years. I like to get photos with people. That's what I do. Right. I mean, the only thing that would get get me excited is when, you know, when hopefully newly divorced Jessica Biel comes in here. (laughs) I'm not going to ask for a selfie. I'm going to ask for a phone number. She'll say no, but hey. Uh, Brandon, I got to ask you, man. If if there's one rock star that we could make appear, only one in the iHeart offices here in New York City for you to meet and selfie with, who would it be? Axel Rose. No, no question. Number about one. It. Oh, oh, number one. I'm talking. We could. What if we could even resurrect some members of the Beatles if necessary? To resurrect? I mean, Elvis Len- Presley. Lennon probably. Wait, John Lennon. Oh, John Lennon. I was no. like, Len- <laughs> like Soviet I Lennon. Uh, I know it's a political show. Yeah, but no, yeah, John yeah. Lennon. Uh, okay, John Lennon. That would be your all. So all time would be John Lennon. But right now, living would be Axel. I Axel think. Axel Rose, or maybe Ozzy. I will say Bon Jovi has aged better than Axel Rose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bon, bon Jovi gets a lot of rest. <laughs> Fair enough, man. All right. Well, anyway, I hope you're enjoying the show today, folks. Make sure you check out if you're listening to this on uh, on radio. Uh, Pluto TV. Download the app. It's totally free. Channel 248, Pluto TV. Please do check us out. I'm on Jesse Kelly's on. We're going to have some new shows joining in the weeks ahead. And also, if you are listening on radio and you want to listen earlier in the day and you want to always know that you can listen whenever you want on demand, subscribe to The Buck Sexton Show 
on iTunes or on the iHeartRadio app. Uh, we watch those podcast numbers. They're going up, up, up each month because of all of you. So please also tell somebody, hey, check out the Buck Saxon Show. It's a huge – that is my Christmas and birthday gift this month from you guys. Tell one person to download the Buck Saxton Show. You know, I got to say I was uh, watching just trying to – because I'm, I'm writing this book – Crushing the Commies. I can't call it that. We're going to have to. It's going to be something about socialism in America. But the book is uh, more than halfway done, so it's it's coming along. I, I got to write a lot this month. But I took a little break, and I just flipped on the TV, and I saw uh, Goldeneye of the, of, the James Bond, uh, of the James Bond series. And I got to tell you something. The Goldeneye video game is better than the Goldeneye movie. <laughs> the Goldeneye movie is really corny. But uh, the GoldenEye video game, my brothers and I played that thing on Nintendo 64. I mean, I was I was incredible. I would play as Odd Job, and I'm telling you, I could have beaten like at those little tournaments where they have people that actually play for money. I feel I feel like in my heyday, I would have I would have been able to win a GoldenEye tournament. Of course, of course, my little brother, if he's listening to this right now, would claim that he's better than me at it, which might be true. But hopefully, he's missing out on on this this part of the show today because he he'll call me out because he was good at it as well. But uh, I, I was watching that, and then I, I saw today that there is uh, advertisement finally for the fine, the final. What's this guy? Who's this guy's name? What's his name? The one, the new Bond, uh, Daniel Craig. I got it, Daniel Craig. No time to die. So that the trailer is out for it. Maybe we'll have on. I don't know. You know, it'd be fun to have on Jesse Kelly later on in the week to talk to him about the one and only Jesse Kelly is also on Pluto TV channel two forty eight. The first plug it. Uh, because I think that Daniel Craig, the first James Bond he did was kind of new and fresh, and it was a nice restart of it. I think it's just gone pretty much downhill from there. I thought that there, the plots, the bad guys have been kind of ridiculous. The plots have been hard to follow. The one where there was like a water, he's in South America, and there's like a almost like a climate change theme to the whole thing was just absurd. Just absurd. It wasn't a very it wasn't a very good one. But I'm hoping do we know who the new James Bond is gonna be? I, I remember it was going to be Idris Elba for a little bit and then they and then it wasn't, right? Who's producer Brandon? Tell me who the new James Bond will be. Because I think this is uh this is a series that, you know, people should remember and all that stuff. It's you know, there's there's some good there's some good episodes. I there is the discussion always about whether Sean Connery or uh, Roger Moore or Timothy Dalton. I think he was weak as James Bond. But do we know who the Bond's number is up? Wait, there, there is are rumors that it's going to be a British actor. Uh, Lesh, what is it? Leshana Lynch? I didn't know who this is. So okay. they're they're going. So a female African-American. Yeah. I'm sorry. Pardon me. A female uh, black British Actor, Those, is, that's the rumor mill. That's the rumor right now. Okay, all right, interesting. I did, I did not know that. Let's yeah, look to see how it goes. I'm also producer Brand. Are you going to watch The Irishman? This is the other thing I've kind of got to think about. I don't know. I don't know if I. I don't like all this like, hey, do you do the thing with the thing. You go to place <laughs> with the person. I do the, hey, you talk to Vinny. You talk to uh, you know Vinny Two Fingers Vinny, about Vinny about Vinny Tommy Five Fingers. I mean. You know, I mean, I feel like I have to because everyone's talking. So you haven't about watched it yet? Not yet. I'm I got to invest a lot it. of time because isn't it like four hours or something? Yeah, people are saying that it's a real, it's a haul, a long haul to get through. They might as well have made that a, like a series, not a movie. I mean, I, I will say I'm see. I respect Goodfellas. Like I will watch yes. 
Goodfellas is on, and I feel like it's one of these movies that's on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. Wherever it's on, I don't watch it all the way through now, but I'm like, all right, it's good. I got to watch like 20 minutes of this stuff. <laughs> I've seen it so many times. And uh, it's funny to me, too, because I really don't like any of, like, I don't think any of the characters, they're not good people. They're all bad people. There's really no one to root for. Like, even Henry Hill's a bad guy. And if you know his story, he did bad stuff even after he kind of got out and was in witness protection and all this other stuff. So he's not, these are not good people, but it's very entertaining. It's just really well written. It's like The Sopranos. I mean, Tony Soprano wasn't a good person, I guess, but. No, these mob guys are all really bad. This is what people kind of forget in these things. The anti-hero. Yeah, well, but but they're not, they always do this thing in these movies where they have the mob guy, but he's got a code and he's really (laughs) just going, that's actually not true. These mob guys like go into, you know, deli owner's, Home, you know, deli owner's place of business, if you don't pay the protection money, they, like, break your fingers in front of your wife. I mean, they're not good people. So I feel like there's a, you know, there's a little bit of a hero worship around the, the mob some stuff. some traits you might like, you know. Yeah, like, everyone knows, like, the Russian mafia, it's like, you pay or you die. Like, no one, <laughs> no one's like, oh, yeah, the Russian mafia is like, no, we don't involve civilians in our, you know, turf wars or something. Eh, Italian mafia did bad stuff, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, very bad stuff. It's not good people. Anyway, I, I'm a little, I'm a little off the, uh, you know the, the the tracks on that one. Everybody else is like, "Oh, I just love, I just love all this stuff so much." I think these mob movies are amazing. And I think Casino is. It's a very, it's a very, it's an, an entertaining movie. It's a really depressing movie. They're all bad people. These mobsters are bad people. I don't know. This, this is what I kind of get a little. You know, I get a little bit. Uh, people look at me like I'm the the hall monitor here of of media. But I'm not saying don't watch these movies. I've seen them a ton of times. I just. Sometimes feel like there's not enough of an understanding that these characters are really bad guys. It does remind me of how when the movie uh, Wall Street came out, Oliver Stone was very upset to find out afterwards that people like love and idolize Gordon Gecko. He's supposed to be the bad guy in the movie, and everyone's like, "This guy walks around with suspenders and French cuff shirts. He's got fast cars, beach houses, and beautiful women at his beck and call." I I think I want to be Gordon Gecko. <laughs> people did not did not have the intended. Uh, uh, moral takeaway from that movie. I mean, that that is, by the way, Michael. I think Michael Douglas's best role of, of all time. Um, but uh, so I'll, I'll let you know. I'll probably uh, bring somebody in here. We'll maybe talk a little bit of Bond stuff. I, you know, I, I just I haven't really thought the Daniel Craig movies recently have been particularly worthwhile. I get asked, you know, what what are the best CIA movies? I think the best CIA movie for me. Well, the most I really like Spy Game, which is actually a Redford and Brad Pitt. Red, Red, Right, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt movie. I think Spy Game is very entertaining for what it is. It's well done. Um, I think that you the, I mean, the Bond series is iconic. So you can't if you add it together as a totality of work, it's pretty incredible. Uh, then I would I would say Zero Dark Thirty is really good, um, really good movie for what it is. I I enjoyed it, and there's a, enough realism that it's not completely absurd. Don't even get me started on. Jack Ryan season two. I haven't even finished it yet. I'm done. I can't do it. Can't do it. Can't do it. I've tried. It's just too bad. It's too, it's too crappy. John Krasinski or whatever really let me down on that one. So it makes me uh, makes me sad. And I, I don't know. I don't think I think we're going to have to just I don't think I'm going to watch The Irishman. I don't think I'm going to get around to it anytime soon. I have too much other good stuff. You know, I haven't even gotten to Peaky Blinders season five yet. Peaky, oh, Peaky Blinders. Amazing show. I'm a I'm a big peak. It is hard to understand them. You probably should watch it with subtitles. It's a little bit what, like when they interview the guys from Oasis. They're like, oh, you know what I mean? Blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? And you're like, where where are you guys from? You're from England. This is where the language comes from, and this is the mumbling that you do is supposed to be English. 
It's absurd. Like you know, movies. Liam and Noel Gallagher, right? Those guys? Yeah. Like you, or they don't you speak watch, English. I don't you know, know what they speak. You watch like Lockstock, uh, Two Smoking Barrels, you don't understand, or Snatched. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I actually thought that when Brad Pitt did his accent in Snatched, I was like, this is absurd. Nobody sounds like that. And then Travelers, as they prefer to be called, Travelers, not Gypsies. Travelers in the UK, I actually heard interviews with, you know, they became more of, they became, I think, in part well-known because of that movie, or better known. And then there's these, like, series, there's like a TLC series, like Travelers with the, gypsy, with the you know, not the Gypsy. Don't say Gypsy. That's bad. They don't like Gypsy. They, they, uh, they punch people over that. And apparently they're very good fighters. So you don't want to get into it with them. Um, but uh, they do sound, that, that is the accent. His accent was actually, the way that he speaks in that movie is kind of the way that they speak, which is not... Strictly speaking, English. <laughs> I think it's some version. <laughs> Close of, captioning. Some version of English. All right. That's our little uh, pop culture diversion today. Let's get to uh, roll call. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Roll call. You know it. Everybody, let's get to it in the roll call time, which is always fantastic. Um, so let's see what we got here. All right. Um, well, that one's too long. Carolyn, big fan from Canada. You are so funny. You make me laugh out loud. I hope one day you do marry. You seem like a catch. Cheers. Well, Carolyn from Canada, thank you very much. This is a very nice message to start the show with today. And I also hope that I marry. And I would like to think I'm a catch. Perhaps a handful, but a catch. Uh, and I'm glad that you laugh at the show. We, we try to have some fun. I know we do serious stuff. We try to have fun on here, too. I mean, it's people spend they spend a lot of time in the hut. I mean, we, we hang out together a lot. I, mean, I, I love it when people send me emails that say they've downloaded you know, a whole week of shows and, and held it until they had a long road trip or something. And they just wanted to, you know, they just listened to like seven or eight hours of the Buck Sexton show while they're in the car. I'm like, this is great. It's like I'm hanging out. With them. It's, it's like we're road tripping together, except I get to sit at home in my pajamas watching Netflix and ordering Thai food. Two of my my absolute favorite activities and going to the gym. Theoretically. Uh, let's see here. Erica. Right. I like your insult of aggressively, aggressively stupid, but try my favorite version, extra special kind of stupid. Erica, perhaps I will manage to work that one into the rotation. Thank you so much. Roger, the Young Turks also deny the Armenian genocide happened. Does that make them deniers? Uh, yeah, the Young Turks is not an honorable not an honorable organization, so do not. I mean, I, 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 I do not uh, find uh, that Jenk is unwilling to talk and exchange the other side, and he he can show manners when he chooses to. But some of his employees are are just horrible individuals. They really are, and the people that like that site are trash, trash. Not all of them, of course. I'm sure there's some nice people, but like mostly bad people. <laughs> and some of them, I'm sure, are nice people. I think it's the second time I managed to work that into the show today. I like that. Yeah. Um, Michael, men at, uh, just came across Men at Work on YouTube. Now the whole team can weigh in on its merits. No, man, we know that we come from a land down under where women 
something and men plunder or something, whatever, you know, whatever the, whatever the lyrics. Something about a Vegemite sandwich. Vegemite is disgusting, by the way. It is dis- You know it's disgusting, too. It's appalling. I got to see Colin Hay, who's the lead singer of Men at Work. Uh, he's part of Ringo's All-Star Band this past summer. Really? Just a little, uh, just a little tidbit. I'll so, share that with you. Real quick, Ringo's obviously alive. Oh, yeah. He's alive. Uh, he has an All-Star Band, people with from Sticks, and just like a lot of random you know, All-Stars yeah. in the rock and roll world. Look at that, man. Look at you. We got to put out a call. We got to like somehow get someone in the Freedom Hut to get Axl Rose to come in here for an interview just so we could watch... Just so we can watch Brandon's like whole universe, you know, like cross the streams <laughs> and everything. Like we we we'll, we'll find him. Mean, do we have enough reach? I mean, we got the we've gotten you know cabinet members. I've interviewed the president. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll get Axel Rose at some point. I'm sure you two. When's have your a, birthday? Uh, September. So it just passed. All right. Veronica? Well, we got time. We got time then. Okay. Maybe maybe next okay. September. Okay. <laughs> oh, if we get Axl Rose to come in here, oh, you would make and do headlines everywhere. Well, of course, but also we just get him to weigh in on his favorite. I don't even care if he hates Trump. Doesn't matter to me at all. Just get him to weigh in on politics for fun. Be like, you know, if Welcome to the Jungle came out today, would that change the political discourse? Sure. You know, just add like try to bring him into the conversation. I think that would be great. Yeah, you know, well, we're going to work on it. I'm sure somebody out there, Axl Rose's. Freedom-loving, all-American grandma probably listens to the Buck Sexton <laughs> show, and right now she's like, "I'll get young Axel to come on into the show." We could totally get this to happen. All right, all right, all right. I'll we're, dream. We're working on it. Living under prayer. We tried to get Bon Jovi from today, but Bon Jovi <laughs> is too fancy. He had to run out of here. Whatever. Uh, um, I do not have. Why do we go here? I do not have. Uh, okay, yes. Sorry. Tim, you nailed it yesterday on the social credit score tyranny. China is all over it. Yeah, no, Tim, I know it's uh, it's true, man. China's doing some some very uh, scary stuff these days, and I wish people would pay closer attention to it. China is the real concern for us. Russia is a concern, but we could bring we could over time. Think of where Russia. This is I meant to bring this up yesterday. Actually, look at where Russia is now. Look at where the Soviet Union was. 30 years ago. If you look at the trajectory of U.S.-Russia relations, we're much closer to Russia than we were in living memory. U.S.-Russia relations have gotten leaps and bounds better. We were staring at each other talking about annihilation in living memory. And for a long time. Now, you know, we, yeah, we have our differences with them, but like we, we would like to be America in 20 years being friendly with the Russians the same way we're friendly with the French or friendly with, you know, would be a good thing. That doesn't mean that we can just concede on everything and let the Russians do whatever they want, of course. But if you're talking about what would be in America's interest, that's in America's interest. Trying to, like, have this continuous showdown, all the assuage the ego of Hillary Clinton and her voters from 2016 is a very bad idea. Uh, But now I'm, I'm getting away from roll call. Here we go. Um, David writes, I'm watching on Pluto TV. You and Jesse are great, but turn up the volume. Please normalize your shows to match the commercials on the channel. I hope you get this message. Something can be done. Why do we have all these volume issues, producer Brandon? What is going on here, man? They got to give me and Mark like timestamps of when this is happening, because when I load stuff in, when he loads stuff in, it's a nice brick of sound. I mean, I also I just so want to take know. all the complaints and just... 
I want to print them out, and then I want to airdrop them on the beach while producer Mark is sunning himself <laughs> with his new lovely bride. You know, he's all having fun. Who's here manning the front lines of Freedom Producer Brandon? That's right. This duo right here. I mean, sometimes, like, you know when you watch TV, the commercials are louder than the show? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's on their end. But on our end, I mean, unless it's, like, a, one of your sound clips. I don't know. I wish somebody could fix this. Give us a time, a time stamp. Um, speaking of producer Mark, Stefan writes, congratulations to producer Mark. Indeed, producer Mark. At least somebody in the Freedom Hut is. Well, you're not married yet, right? No. At least somebody in the Freedom Hut's married. Well, you know, one of us is doing the whole adult thing. Um, Sarah writes, hey, Buck, love the show. Great work. My question for you is what would it take to start a social media campaign to demand an apology from the Dems for President Trump? I know he'll never get it. Um, yeah, Sarah, he'll, he'll never get it. <laughs> That's never going to happen, I got to tell you. Uh, the Ukrainian quid pro quo fishing expedition is also a hoax. They got nothing, and out of pure shame, they should be compelled to apologize for the smear campaign that they have had against President Trump. Sarah, I agree with your sentiments. I am frustrated, too, but it is what it is. So thank you so much. Um, team, that's going to be the show for today. I hope you realize this is like the best podcast slash radio show slash uh, simulcast on video ever. Tell your friends about it. Shield side.